Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. We're going to continue this morning the uh, part we started a couple of weeks ago about God's plan for building the church, God's plan for building the church. And we've been looking at God's plan for building his church. And the last time together, I think it's been a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the aspect of God's plan just to bring you up to steam. We talked about his aspect being the equipping of the saints there in verse 12. And it said that we would be equipped so that we might be perfect. If you remember, we looked at that and there was three ways that we're actually perfected um, in, in Christ, the, the first way that we're perfected is by justification. That means that we are justified through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We use the word salvation for that. So we are, we are perfected through salvation. We're also going to be perfected through glorification. That's when we reach this eternal home. That's the time that we shed this body of sin and, and we're in God's presence. We'll be glorified. So we're perfected in justification. We're perfected in glorification. But we looked head, uh, heartedly last time about being perfected in maturity. There's also a church word for that, and that church word is sanctification. That means that we're being changed. We're continually being changed. And there's three ways that we talked about last time that we're changed. Trials in our life. I think we can all say that we've had trials in our life that has made us closer to God because of those trials. We're also changed in our life or sanctified in our life through prayer through spending time with God in prayer, hearing His voice, allowing Him to speak into our heart. Then there's a third way that we're, we're sanctified and, and work through that sanctification, and that's through the Word being in our life, through taking this message and allowing this message to change our heart instead of us trying to change the message to adapt to us. We take the Word that God has spoken, the infallible, inerrant, perfect Word of God, and allow it to work in our hearts, and that's sanctification in our life. He does this for a couple of reasons. Number one, for work in the ministry. We're, we're not just saved and set on a pew and said we have our ticket punched. We're sanctified for His ministry to go out and share the good news to the world around us. We're also being sanctified to edify the body of Christ. In other words, to make the body of Christ be lifted up so that each part knows its importance and we hold each other accountable for those things that we find in the Word. So, so we're being sanctified for that work. We're being sanctified for the edifying of the body. Well, that brings us to the next part of the plan. So the first part of the plan was this, this aspect of God's plan. The second thing we're going to look at is the ambition of God's plan. Today we're going to look at the ambition of God's plan. And we're going to start there in that 13th verse. And the 13th verse, it starts off and says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the, of the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, he's, he's picking up this clue that he gave us back in, in uh, the start there, back in those uh, first uh, couple of verses whenever he started this, when he was talking about him being the prisoner of the Lord and that we're having all this loneliness, uh, gentleness in our minds and that we're long-suffering and we're bearing one, with one another in love there in verse 2. And then when he moved to verse 3, he says, we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in this bond of peace. And he moved from there to say there is, there is one body. There is one Spirit. There is one hope of calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. See the picture of unity that he's pointing towards this body? He's saying that there is this one thing and we should all abide in that one thing in and all be one in the faith. All be one in the faith when he says till we all come to the unity of the faith. 
the faith of Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the church is built. See, the church should be focused completely on that cornerstone. For if the cornerstone is not set right and is not the right cornerstone, the building collapses. Yet we have for our cornerstone Jesus. See, we as the church set our church upon Jesus. So it says there in verse 13 that till we all come to the unity of the faith, it could say till we all come to the unity of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. See, we should all be pointed towards who Jesus is. See, a unified church glorifies God. When the world sees the church, you remember we read as we were studying that back in the the very first part of the fourth chapter, when the world looks at a church that is unified in the faith, what does the world see? They see their condemnation, if you remember it tells us in the Word. They look at the unification of the church and say, something is so different. What would the world see different if they walked into our church every Sunday? Would, if a person came in not knowing about church, having only heard, if they didn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they walked into this place, would they be so taken aback at the unity that we have of faith in Jesus Christ that they'd immediately recognize the sin in their life? We know that's what the Word says. The Word says that the church should be so unified, the body of the believers should be so unified that when the world is in your presence, they realize they're a sinner. That's a strong message. And see, if you look at our church today, is that the picture? Not just us at Moore's Creek, but is it the picture of the church collectively? I would dare say we may be able as Moore's Creek to say, yes, that is our picture. But if we look at the church worldwide, I don't think that's the picture the world's getting. I don't think the picture feels very uncomfortable in the presence of the church because the church has tried to make itself look like the world. I'm not against doing things that we see done as far as musical changes or things or using projection or sound systems or whatever it may be, using the things God has given us. But the one thing I am against is making the church look like the world to attract the sinner. Because all I've done then is give him a comfortable place to come and I've verified that what he's doing in the world is okay. What I want him to do is come in that door, see your love and unity and realize what he's doing is not okay that there is a just and holy God that looks upon what is going on in their life and say that is sin and you need forgiveness. And then by him being or her being in our presence, come to know Jesus. Because what the Bible also says is being in the unification of the body, walking in as the world into that unification, condemns them, makes them understand that they are lost. But it also says that it lets them see your salvation. I asked you, if a person came in, would they be condemned of their sin? The second question is, would they understand who the Savior is by looking at you? You see, that's a tough message to swallow. I can think just within hours or days of things that I have done that it would have been difficult at that moment for the world to see my Jesus. Those are the things that we need to be wetting the altar with our tears asking for repentance of because we are the voice of Christ to the world. And see, the church needs to be unified. The greatest way that the church can pe preach the gospel message to the world is to be unified in Christ. 
The greatest way that you can share the gospel is to be unified in Christ. To hold firm to the teaching of the word that, that God is love, yes, but that God is also a just God. Which means he loves all of us, but he will also punish sin. That there is a penalty for sin. We have so watered down the gospel now that the lost person no longer thinks there's any penalty to pay for the things that go on in their life. But there is a penalty to be paid for sin. Sin has a consequence, both in the lost and the saved. Sin has a penalty. We also need them to hear the message from us that there is only one Savior. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. It's not through the programs. It's not through the Sunday school. It's not through a good preacher. It's not through good music. It is through Jesus Christ alone. We need to tell them that he died on a cross, that he was buried in a tomb, that he rose three days later, just as the word says, and that he did it for them. The only way you can share that message is to believe that message. The only way the world will ever know that Jesus died on the cross for their sins is to know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The only way that they're going to understand the glory that arose from that tomb is for that glory to be evident in your life. The only way they know that there is a place other than here <laughs> that they're going to wind up is to see you looking not like this is your world, your home, but as heaven is your eternal home. You see, we need to tell them the story through our life. We need them to realize this world is not our home, that we are only sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're wandering through to tell the story of Christ with our eyes focused upon the day that we will be glorified eternally in the presence of the God Almighty. We need to tell them that story. You see, a church that stands on the truth of God's Word is unified. A church that places the word first becomes unified. A unified church displays the glory of God. But see, it not only said are we to be unified in the faith, but it also says that we're to be unified in the knowledge of the Son of God, the knowledge of the Son of God. The Greek word that's used there, uh, ipignosius is the Greek word that's used there. It's a big word that really means, if we were to define it as it literally is stated here in the term, means full discernment or full acknowledgement. It's a little different than just knowing there is a Jesus. You see, because just to know Him historically doesn't change a thing. There are religions that don't believe He is the Savior, Savior that acknowledge there was a man named Jesus. Acknowledging there was a man named Jesus still doesn't fix the sin in your life. You see, it's more than just saying there is this figure, there's this historical person named Jesus. See, it's not even about our religion. We call ourselves Christians. Well, his name is Jesus Christ. I hope it's no secret to you that you get the label Christian from the fact that you are to believe in Jesus Christ. But it's not about the cross you wear around the neck or the bumper sticker on the back of your car, or this title that you wear. You see, it's not enough just to trust in Jesus for your salvation and say he's my God. That is not what he's saying when he says we're to come together in the unity of the knowledge of the Son. Remember, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's not preaching evangelistically the gospel. 
He's assuming that those that are reading and hearing the letter this morning already know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So what he's saying is not that you come to the knowledge of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's writing the letter as if he's already talking to that group. What he is saying here, the breadth of this term, the real width and the depth of it means that we're to have a deep, deep understanding of who Jesus is. Let me break the news to you. Jesus is more than your ticket to heaven. We need to realize Jesus is more than just our Savior. I've said it time and time again, and I hope you already know what I'm about to say, but when it mentions Savior in the Bible, most times there's another word attached. What is the word? Lord. Those are not the same. They are two separate things. He, yes, is our Savior, but for Him truly to be your Savior, He must also be your Lord. And see, when it says that we're to come to faith in the knowledge of this Son of God, He's saying, you've now accepted Him as your Savior. You need to make Him Lord in your life. And there's only one way that that can be accomplished. That is through a deep, deep understanding of who He is. You see, when Jesus called upon that cross and died for your sins, there was more in that act than the taking away of your sins. You see, there was a dying of your old self. When that blood washed over you, you no longer were the person that you used to be. To say that you're a Christian, yet you're the same old person, is a lie. There is no way that your life can be changed by Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, and you live as if you lived the day before you met Him. You see, a deep knowledge of Jesus Christ, yes, gives you the salvation. You understand what salvation is, but then you also understand this life that I've been living is not glorifying to the one who crawled upon the cross. You spend time in prayer, praying, asking for a change in your heart, listening to the heart of God, desiring to hear what His will is, not to come to Him with a laundry list of things you want. I hope if you're with us on Wednesday night, you're getting the same message from Matthew that I'm getting in this Lord's Prayer. And the message is, you know what? Prayer has absolutely nothing to do with me. You know, we come to God all the time. We fall on our face and we give Him this laundry list of these things in our life that we can't handle. And if, if I can be honest with you for a minute, most of those things on your laundry list that you give to Him, had you listened to Him in prayer six months ago, that laundry list wouldn't exist. We come to Him later and say, God, I'm in this fix. There's something I need you to do in my life. I've got this situation. And if we're honest with ourselves, had we listened to God before in prayer instead of uttering the things that we wanted, we'd have never been in the fix that we're asking Him to get us out of now. We need to go to God in prayer. Yes, give Him our petitions. But we need to focus on what He's saying to us. I don't know about you, but... It is so refreshing to me to sit down with the book of Psalms and just read through the book of Psalms and pray a psalm back to God and then just sit quietly and listen to how He speaks to my heart. You know, oftentimes I go to Him with that laundry list, but I start in Psalm and I'm, I'm praying a psalm back to Him, just reading back saying, God, you said this. And I read it back to Him and I say, now speak to my heart through it. And I stop and listen to Him. And I get up from praying and have completely forgotten about my laundry list. You know why? Because most times when I pray to God, He just tells me, you know that stuff that you're bringing is not that important. Don't worry about it. Son, just, just come sit and let me talk to you. You know, we need to get 
into prayer with God in such a way that we're fellowshipping with our Heavenly Father who loves us so much that He died upon a cross for our sins. Not only do we, do we get this, this breadth, this depth of Jesus through our prayer, but also through reading the Word. Have you ever just desired to hear Jesus speak? Wouldn't it just be wonderful one time to be like the disciples and just hear His voice? Have you ever imagined what it sounds like? Have you ever just thought of what He would say if He was in your presence and to hear His voice? I've got great news for you. If you have one of those red letter edition Bibles, it makes it even easier. If you want to hear Jesus speak, why don't you read what He said? You see, we oftentimes want to hear a word from God, and I can only imagine God. I know I just picture Him doing this in my life, and I say, God, I just want to hear Your voice. And He laughs and says, I've already spoken. What else is there to be said? What else is there that God could say to me that He hasn't already said through His Word? What else is there? He's already told me that He loves me. He's already shown me and told me that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. He's already told me that I'm going to live eternally in His presence because He raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus Himself has already told me that I have not left on this world alone, that He has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell me as my comforter, my keeper, my helper. He has already told me in the book of Revelation there is going to be a difficult time in this world, but He has promised that He's going to pick me up and take me out of that long before it ever happens. He's already promised in this Word that at the end of the day, no matter how difficult life is on this earth, that I'm going to sit at the feet of my Savior. What else do I need? You see, we wait for the stars to fall back and God's voice to boom from heaven when He's looking at us and I've already talked to you. Read it. You want a deep understanding of who Jesus Christ is. You go read what He said in the Word. And you stay there and you pray what He said into the Word until it speaks to your heart in such a way you get a new picture of Jesus. But there's another way that we actually get to know the deep understanding, that deep knowledge of Christ. Yes, in prayer. Yes, absolutely in reading the Word and it's soaking into our heart. But also by being obedient to His Lordship. You want to know who Jesus is? You follow him around. You want to know who my Jesus is? You put on your sandals and walk in his footsteps. We never saw Jesus sitting still, doing nothing. He would retreat to the mountain to pray. He would stop and sit down by a well, but he wasn't sitting there because he wanted to rest. He was sitting there because he wanted to tell some poor lost lady about salvation. We see him climbing a boat and row across the sea so that he can meet with a group of folks that were physically hungry, yet were more spiritually hungry. We see him earnestly praying in the garden, yet not staying hidden in the garden, but walking right into what he knew would be his physical death. See, you don't see Jesus sitting on a pew listening to a preacher. You see Jesus preaching. You know, we've made this act that I do on Sunday, this thing that I do a profession And we say that there's a preacher at our church. No, there is a whole host of you preachers at our church. I've just been gifted to do it in this particular fashion. But each of us, if you want to know Jesus deeply, walk with Him. Go the places that He goes. Do the things that He does. What did Jesus do when He was on the earth? He said, I came to save that which was lost. And He did it through showing the power of God in His life, the same power 
Ephesians says, that now dwells in you because you have come to understand that He is your Savior. The same power that raised Him from the dead is that power in your life right now. So you walk where He walks and do the things He does. Show the people the power of Jesus in your life. And you explain to them it has absolutely nothing to do with who you are because you're a wretched sinner undeserving of anything from an Almighty God. But He looked down in mercy and grace from heaven and saved you by the same power that raised His Son from the dead. You see, you put on your sandals and you start following Jesus around and you get to know this Jesus in an intimate way. See, I look back at the disciples and say, man, I wish I'd have got to spend three years hand in hand with Jesus Christ. You know what God told me when I said that to him? He said, you've been alive 50 years. You've been saved 1,800 years. Why haven't you been spending time with him now? I've had more time with Jesus than they did. And here I'm thinking, wouldn't it be nice to be in His presence? And every time I pick this up, I am. Every time I go out and share the gospel, I am. Every time I gather with you and worship the Almighty God, I am right there with Jesus. What an awesome thought. What an awesome thought. Flip over to Philippians with me really fast. Philippians chapter 3. Here's Paul's take on this whole getting to know Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, and it says this. Actually, verse 7. It says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Let me ask you before we read the rest of those. What have you given up for Jesus Christ? What can you look in your life right now and say, you know, all these things that I've gained, all the wealth in the world, the good job, the health I have, all the possessions I've got, I count all of those lost because of this man named Jesus Christ. This is where Paul starts. He goes to verse 8 and he says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, not only do I count all the things that I have gained lost for Christ, but I count them lost just to know this Jesus more deeply. He goes on to say, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. All things he counts as rubbish. Why? That he may gain Christ. Just a side note that popped in my head. Do you remember how the church started in Acts? Do you remember the preaching of the gospel and 3,000 were saved? Do you know what happened next? They got to know Jesus deeper. You know how I know that? Because it says they sold everything they had and they brought it to the apostles and said, do what you must to share the love of Jesus with those around. When's the last time we have gave till it hurts? When's the last time we've got off the couch when we were too tired to move? I know the last time I got off the couch when I was too tired to move, and that was last week. I was absolutely exhausted by Wednesday night. I told Wendy, I said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done to try to work full-time and preach the whole time. You know what God said to me? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. <laughs> he says, don't worry about the fact that you're physically tired. I'm more powerful than that demon of tiredness upon your back. You can use the excuse of being tired. You can use the excuse of being broke. You can look at me and say, I'm too old. <laughs> I'll tell you to go back and read about a guy named Abram. And if you can read the story of Abraham and Sarah, and you come back to me and tell me you're too old for God to use you, I'll bury you that day. In case you don't know the story, it had something to do with numbers like 90 and 99 and a new kid being born. And through the new kid came your Savior, Jesus Christ. What if Abraham had said, you know, God, I'm too old? Who would have crawled upon the tree? You could tell me that you just don't feel capable. 
that you're not smart enough, that you just don't have the intellect to, to do the things that God's asked you. You've got to realize when you accepted Jesus as your Savior, your mind became the mind of Christ. Are you telling me that Jesus doesn't know enough to tell you how to be saved? Are you telling me that Jesus doesn't know enough to change the life of a lost person? Because by you, the Christian, telling me that you don't have the intellect to do it, you're telling me your Jesus is stupid. My Jesus isn't stupid. My Jesus has the intellect above all intellect. And it's his mind that's now in me because of what he did for me upon that cross. So tell me all the excuses you want. I'm going to point you to Paul who had it made. He was the upper echelon of all that there was. And he says, I count every bit of that lost. I count it as rubbish. I count it as worthless that I may gain this one thing, Christ, and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which was the law. In other words, not having righteousness in myself saying, okay, I've done this. I've been to church Sunday. I've attended Sunday school three out of the last four weeks. I even came out to the concert the other night. And yeah, they took up some money to feed a guy. I did that. And not only that, but I did tell somebody that we're having church on Sunday. My righteousness, Paul says, is not in the things of the law. He says, I'm not righteous by those things of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith, he says in verse 9. See, Paul counted everything that he had gained through the law as rubbish, and everything he had gained through Christ as righteousness. I was expecting you to jump up and run around the church when I said that. I may in just a minute, and just forgive me. But verse 10, it goes on to say that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I want to know Jesus in so much power that He raises me from my dead sinful life to a life in Him. What a thought. He goes on in verse 12 to say this. Not that I have already obtained. Paul says, I haven't made it. Paul said, I'm writing you this letter. I'm your leader. I'm, I'm the one who's instructing you. I helped set up the churches. But let me just be honest with you for a second. I haven't made it. But look what he says. Or already perfected. I'm by no means perfected. But what does he say? But I press on. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. You see, he says that he's trying to know what it means to be perfected. He's trying to obtain this perfection that is continually striving, he's continually seeking, he's continually searching Jesus Christ for all that he is. He's mining the wealth of this person, Jesus Christ, for all that he is that he might lay hold to. That which Jesus Christ has laid hold of him. He's saying that he might possess that which Christ has already possessed for him. What is the thing that Christ possessed for Paul and you as a Christian? He alludes to it there in verse 12 when he says, I'm not already perfected. What Christ has laid hold of for us. Because we couldn't do it by the law. We couldn't do it by our works. We couldn't do it by our own righteousness. What Christ laid a hold of and gave to you? Perfection. For the perfect lamb 
spotless as he was, hung upon a cross for your sins, that you might be perfect in the eyes of God. What a thought. What a thought. Romans chapter 8. What a beautiful sound to turn into the pages of a Bible. Romans 8, verse 29, should be a theme verse in your life. It says this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Would you join me in saying that Christ is the perfect image? The perfect image? It said right there that Christ knew you, called you, predestined you to be a part of the family of God so that you'll be conformed to the perfect image of His Son. Two things happen when I read that verse. Inside I rejoice at what God has done for me. Yet inside, I see just how far far short I have fallen. You see, that word not only causes me to rejoice, but it convicts me all at the same time. Because I realize it's not about just being saved. It's about me being conformed, which is changed into something else. That something else is the image of Jesus Christ. See, not only are we to be unified in faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, it says there in Ephesians 4, but it definitely says there, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to be a perfect man. To be a perfect man. How many of you think you're perfect this morning? I know some of you ladies. I know you looked in the mirror this morning and you are as close as it can get to perfection. I will give you that. You're beautiful. The outside men. I threw my mirror away. I don't know about you guys. I realized God took all that beauty he was going to give me and he decided I didn't need it and he gave it to my wife. So she's double beautiful. Maybe that will get me out of the trouble I've caused over the last week right there. But here it's not talking about being perfect as far as we see ourselves. As a matter of fact, you know, it's not even talking about being sinless. It's not even talking about being sinless. For us to have within our mind the illusion that one day on this earth we'll walk around completely sinless before Jesus returns is an illusion exactly contrary to the Word of God. Because the Word of God says that daily we're going to battle the sin in this world because of the body that we're living in. We should be striving to be sinless, but that will only be accomplished the day that we're glorified. We'll only be glorified the day that God calls us home. Yet every day we should be less sinless than the day before. You see, when God saved us, when God forgave you of your sins, He forgave you of all the sins that you committed before the day that you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And believe it or not, He's already forgiven you for all those sins that you are going to commit after you've come to know Him as Lord and Savior. But there's one thing you have to realize about those sins after you have become Lord and Savior. They're forgiven the same way the ones that you did before you bumped into this Jesus are forgiven. See, to be forgiven, you must come to Him and say, God, I'm a sinner. I did it. It wasn't my upbringing by mom and dad. It wasn't my next door neighbor. It wasn't as Red Fox, I think it was, used to say. It wasn't the devil made me do it. 
I did it. I sinned. I did it because I liked it. I did it because I wanted to. It's nobody else's fault. You come to Jesus and you say, I did it. And I can't get out, but I know how I can. And it's through what you, Jesus, have done. And you fall on your face and you confess those sins to him and you ask for forgiveness of those sins. And you get up never to commit those sins again. See, in that same manner, after you become a Christian, you're also forgiven of your sins. See, to sit in the pew and say, I do not sin, is to make the Bible a liar. Because it says that we do. It says, to say you are not a sinner, you are a liar. So therefore, even after coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I realize there are going to be those moments in my life that I'm going to do something directly contrary to God. That is not going to bring Him glory, but it's going to bring Him reproach. It's those things I must still, even though I'm already forgiven of them, fall on my face and say, Jesus, I did it. It's mine. I own it. I chose to do that sin, and now I'm asking you for your forgiveness. I'm repenting of this sin, and I'm going to get up and through the power and strength of you and the Holy Spirit, I'm going to walk away and never do this again. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes what we're saved, we never ask for forgiveness for anything again. We've got to realize we're still going to sin in this body. So that perfection there is not talking about the perfection of sinlessness. What it's talking about is perfection of the sanctification in your life. You're continually being worked more and more towards looking like Jesus. That same Philippians book we're in a second ago in chapter 2, verse 12, tells us exactly what we're supposed to do about our salvation. Chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 12, says this, Therefore, my beloved, again, writing to those that he loves, writing to those Christians, he says, have you as always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. As he's writing to the church, he says, my beloved, which tells me that they are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says to them, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to work out your salvation. It means to continually be working to bring your salvation to completion. Because salvation for us will be completed the day that we are glorified. We are saved and going to heaven. And the salvation will be in completion the day that we're glorified and taken into God's presence. You see that working out is that continual sanctification in your life. It speaks to the obedience part of the Lordship of Christ. It speaks to be obedient in our steps to what Christ says, not what we desire. You see, when we are continually obedient to God's work of sanctification in our life, He works to conform us, to mold us, to make us look more like His Son, Jesus. Ultimate perfection will come the day we're called home. We should continually to be being perfected through the Word of God and obedience to Him and prayer on a daily basis. And lastly, we'll make it to the end of this verse. I thought we'd get further today, but lastly it says at the end of verse 13 of Ephesians 4, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He even reminds us as he's writing to the church that this thing that he's saying to do, to, to come to unity in the faith, to come to the knowledge of the Son of Jesus Christ, to work towards perfection is done by the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. 
See, God wants every believer to manifest Christ's image in your life, in your morality, in your actions, in your speech, in your thoughts, in the things that you post on Facebook, in the way that you talk to your brother or sister in Christ as well as the world, in the actions that happen in your life, in the way that you think. He wants everything about you to be Christ. I ask you, if Christ today were to look at the things that you post on Facebook or the way that you talk at work or the things you've even said in this building to people, would he see Jesus? If Christ were to walk in a room right now and roll back the tape on your life on the screen, would we see Jesus? If you could say no, you need to fall on your face before God and ask for forgiveness just like I had to do when I looked at this. Because I'm being measured by the fullness of Christ, not by a ruler that's a foot long. I'm being measured by a yardstick that's millions of miles tall. Because I'm being measured by the fullness of all that Christ is. And to come up short of the fullness is failure. Failure means there's sin in my life and I must come before Christ and ask for forgiveness for that. You see in 2 Corinthians... We'll end on this passage this morning, I think. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but manifestation of the truth, Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age have blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord. And ourselves, your bondservants for Christ's sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is the light that shines in the world that we walk in? It's you. Christ came. And walked on earth for roughly 33 years. And when he left, he lit a candle in the hearts of those that would be his own. It is that candle that it says in the Word, you're not going to put over top of it a basket, but you're going to set it on the hillside so that it shines its light on all the surrounding people. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the church. For the church not to shine the light into the darkness is placing a basket, covering it. What Paul says is when the world looks at us, it's to see the light of Jesus Christ in our life. What the world should see when it looks at Morris Creek Baptist Church should be Jesus. What the world sees when it looks at each member, each part of the body of Morris Creek Baptist Church is Jesus. It's only through the light of Jesus that the darkness of the world will ever be overcome. 
So this morning we've looked at the ambition of God's plan. A couple of weeks ago we looked at the aspect of God's plan. Next week we'll look at the ability of God's plan to change the world that we're in. This morning I leave you with this question. What, what does your life show forth to the world? What does this church show forth to the world? If we were to dump a busload of folks off outside to come in and join us on Sunday morning, would they immediately know there's something different? Would they immediately understand that there's something different about us? Would they, in fact, understand that it's not that we're weird, but it's that they're lost, because that's what the Word says it should do? And would they immediately understand that salvation is in their midst because they're among saved people? Would they see the light shining into the darkness of their heart? It can only happen one way. For the church to be unified in the knowledge and the faith of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you're here and you can say that you're not sure that you've ever come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's step number one. You can't shine the light of something that you've never been lit by. Your life comes alive aflame with Jesus the day that you come to know him as your Lord and Savior. Because of the things over the last few months of my life, I no longer take it for granted that your presence here every Sunday means I'm going to be with you in heaven forever. I've come to realize that many of us place our eternity upon our name on a roll of the church. I want to be just as blatantly honest as I can be with you this morning. I don't care if you've been through the door of this church every Sunday that it's been opened. If you don't know my Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, your name on the roll at Morris Creek Baptist Church is going to send you to hell if you're counting on that as your salvation. If the light is not shining to the world, it's because the light is not present. This morning, if you're holding on to all the things of the past, say, well, my parents helped build this church. My granddaddy donated the land. I've been here every time the doors open. I've never missed a Sunday school class. I've been a deacon six times. I've sung in the choir. I've led a Sunday school class. I've even preached when the pastor's been out. You know what? That's not the question you're going to be asked when you get in Jesus' face. Jesus isn't going to say, how many times you've been to church? You got your Sunday school badges with you? Let me see your Bible. Is it wore out? You've been reading it? He's not asking any of those questions. The question that he's going to know is, have I become the Lord and Savior of your life? To answer it, I've been to church, is going to say, depart from me. I do not know you. I beg you this morning. If you have not come before Jesus and, and allowed him, just take it to him, take it a hold of that perfection that he wants for your life. And if you have not made him Lord over your life today, do not leave this place without addressing that with God. How do you do that? You admit to him, God, all these things that I've been counting on, they're not going to work. They're all of me and not of you. I take those things and I throw them away and ask that you forgive me of the sin that that is. And I take you as Lord and Savior of my life. You make the exchange at the foot of the cross for the things you've done, for the thing that he did. He takes upon him all that sorriness that we are, and you take upon you all that righteousness that he is. What an awesome picture. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. 
Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.